everyone and welcome to Radio Ombudsman. Welcome to our guest today, Dr. Tony Dysart, uh, who is a well-known colleague at PHSO. He's been with us since 2014 as a clinician and lead clinician. Uh, Tony, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining the show. Thank you. Now, uh, it's a tradition on this show to begin by asking people about their early life, where they grew up and what they remember about the values that were instilled in them. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes, of course. I grew up in Blackburn. I grew up on a council estate in Blackburn, living with my mum and two younger sisters. My mum and... Um, one of my sisters still lives lives there in the same house. I'm the eldest of three children, so a sister who's five years younger than I am and one who's about 18 years younger than I am. My mum was a single parent um, throughout my childhood. Really, what I remember is of her working, doing various jobs, working in factories, working as a cleaner. And that's sort of um, one of the main memories, really, of of. of of my childhood that she was always out at work. She was a very hard worker. I spent a lot of time with my grandmother and my nan, who um, would look after me before um, school and after school whilst my mum was at work. I had a reasonably happy childhood, I guess. It was uh, an interesting time. I, I was probably the only mixed-race child or only mixed-race children on a very white working-class council estate in the middle of Blackburn in the middle of the 70s. And I think a lot of the issues around that time really seemed to pass me by. Um, I wasn't overly aware of, of any problems of growing up. I had a relatively happy childhood. I think that, like many people who were children around the 70s, I remember long summers playing out for long hours from nine till five, not really having a care, really. Um, I know that my mum wouldn't necessarily be that worried where I was because I'd be playing out and, and there was no concerns, which you know is, is, is a big contrast to how things are these days. But like I say, Blackburn in the 70s was rife with lots of racial tensions. And I think that really passed me by. And I think the reason for that is probably the kind of environment that I grew up in with the, the kind of care and the protection, I guess, of my, my nan. And she's been very influential in my life throughout the whole of my life, really. She died when I was 15. And I know that's, that's obviously a long time ago. But still, I think the values that um, I got from her in my kind of adolescence, have remained with me for my my whole life. Um, she was very hardworking. She had eight children, uh, a strong kind of Catholic family, and had worked very hard for all of her life. And she instilled into me that work ethic, which I saw in my mother, and which I, I've still got in me today, really. So, so yeah, so those are sort of um, the, the I guess the key things that I remember from being a child, and I, I think the values that have lived with me today from that time are of how important it is to work hard. And I think I always have worked hard in, in, in whatever role I've, I've kind of undertaken. And I think that comes from my, my childhood in Blackburn. Thank you. Do you still have any religious beliefs? I, I don't. Um, I, I, I was Christian Catholic, but um, I, I don't really follow any particular religious, religious beliefs. My father is was Pakistani, and mum's English, um, but like I said, mum was a single parent, so I, I never really followed my father's religion and never chose to 
follow my mother's religion either. So I'm fairly sort of uh, middle of the road, really. I'm not particularly um, got any leanings to any particular religion. Did you have a strong feeling of what you wanted to do when you were when you were growing up, or did that come later? I, that definitely came later for me, and later a lot later, I think, than than traditionally you would expect. I never really knew what I wanted to do. When I finished school, I left school with five O-levels, um, not really sure what I was going to do or where I was um, heading in life. Um, like I say, um, my family were all hard workers. They worked in, in textile mills. And I did it originally, initially got a job as a in a textile factory, working as a, as a roller fitter, thanks to my uncles. It wasn't a nice job. It was a, a very lowly paid, very filthy job. But um, but it was my first experience of working. I knew then that that's not what I was going to do for the rest of my life. But again, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. No one in my family had been to university. No one was from a medical background. So um, by chance, a friend of mine was um, was a nurse and suggested to me that I should consider going into nursing. So that's what I did. I applied to, to go into nurse training in Blackburn and got a place in um, at the Blackburn School of Nursing, which um, at that point in time, it was a traditional course. It wasn't a degree course. So my five O-levels secured me a place on, on the course in Blackburn, which is exactly this month, 32 years ago. So I started working in the NHS 32 years ago. And I trained as a nurse, and that was a three-year course. So I was never going to be a doctor from being a child. I never knew what I was going to be, and there was never any pressure or any kind of um, feelings for me to go to university or or anything like that. But I just think, again, back to those kind of values of, of working hard and striving hard. I always knew that I was going to do something different than the rest of my family. I was relatively bright at school, not a, a, a massively high achiever, but fairly bright. And so that was encouraged. And so I knew I was going to do something different and if I worked hard and got a a decent education or a qualification I knew that would give me um, a better quality of life I guess. When you uh, decided to go into nursing was it unusual for men to go into nursing? At that time yes it was so in my group of 30 um, nursing students there were two men so it was unusual so you were a bit of a novelty and certainly within the group I trained with and on the wards you were seen as a bit of a novelty but it was fine and, and we just got on with that and um, and I don't think you were necessarily treated any differently you still had to do the work and you worked as hard as the other nurses but certainly you were a, a novelty I mean that's changed massively now so I'm not say, I, I wouldn't say that it's equal proportions but certainly there are more male nurses now working in 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 the healthcare than they used to be and I don't want to labour the point, but what you're saying is that in terms of ethnicity and gender, you didn't experience any exceptional treatment. I mean, certainly, I think about this quite a lot now. I think as you get older, you sort of reflect on life. And I think that looking back when I was a child, I think there's no doubt that there were some times when I did experience kind of racial um, abuse or whatever you want to call it in terms of name calling and, and bullying. But I think weirdly, and I don't know whether this is, is a naivety or this is just purely being an, a very innocent, I, I, I kind, of, kind of seemed to let that pass me by really. It didn't seem to register with me as something that was very bad or something that was really horrible. It was just 
part and parcel of my life. And again, I think, you know, part of that was, I guess, just being very innocent, but also I think having that protective family network that kind of supported me as a child through that. And so, you know, I remember being taught rhymes about, um, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones and those sorts of things. And I, I couldn't remember what prompted those kind of conversations. But looking back, I guess it was because I was having names thrown at me and being bullied. And so we did have those conversations, but at the time it didn't seem like um, anything that was too harsh. And certainly from a gender point of view, I think, if I'm honest with you, being a male nurse, probably you got treated slightly different by the other female nurses on the ward. I wouldn't say you got preferential treatment, but you certainly got treated differently. But at the end of the day, you still had to do the same job and pass the same exams as the, the female nurses. So how long did you practice as a nurse? So I qualified as a nurse in 91 and went to medical medical school in 1997. So I worked as a nurse for about seven, six, seven years as a general nurse and then later as an intensive care nurse. And throughout that time, I, again, striving to do something different, striving to, to better myself, I did a nursing degree at Manchester University. So I did that part time. And that's really what enabled me to, to go to, to medical school. So I, I've got, I don't have any A-levels. I don't have any science background. But um, when I applied to go to medical school, I applied to do the pre-medical year, first of all, and then do the six-year course. So um, so do the five-year course. So it was six years in total. And the nursing degree was my kind of um, entry um, into to, to medicine. But again, I doubt that many nurses go on to become doctors. I think I'm right yeah. in that respect. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's quite remarkable what you've done. Yeah, you are. I mean, in my, again, in the year of about 300, I think there was another nurse. And yeah, it's very unusual at that point for nurses to be going into medicine. And and not really that encouraged. Um, like I said, I did a, a, a six-year degree compared to my kind of 18-year-old contemporaries who all had um, science A-levels. And that was because I didn't have that background in science or that level of, of, of um, academic qualification. But I still had, did have seven or eight years as experience as a nurse, and yet that didn't count. So I did an extra year, which was fine. I didn't mind doing that. But it did feel a little bit galling to have to do that extra year, given my experience. I think the situation is probably very different now, and I think they are recruiting more nurses to shorter courses to do medicine but the times have changed and the I guess the needs for doctors is very different now than it was you know all those years ago. What well, one of the things that I've noticed about you is that throughout your career you've chosen to do very difficult things so you, you chose to work in intensive care you chose to work in palliative care and you've, you've worked in end-of-life care. These are not easy options. No, I think they're challenging, definitely. And I think, again, I enjoy a challenge. Um, and so I think I've always gone to jobs or to careers that have, have made me want to do better, made me want to do something different, and never been put off by the fact that they are difficult career choices, uh, you might find yourself in difficult situations, particularly around the end of life work, but they're very fulfilling areas to work in. So my time in 
in ICU was was very challenging. Was you know you're dealing at that time with the most sick patients in the hospital usually, and yet it, it's a very supportive environment to work in. You've got very good colleagues who are always looking out for each other. You've got immediate access to the medical staff who can always help you. So it was a very supportive environment. My work in end of life care was. I think probably one of the, the highlights of my career in terms of, of working in, at a commissioning level, so working at, a, at a, a level away from clinical care, but actually at that level, being able to, able to direct where we were going in terms of managing end-of-life care in Haywood, Middleton and Rochester. And that was really interesting, really challenging, but really fulfilling in terms of the, the work that we did, the design of services that we were involved in and the changes in the services that we were involved in, we were involved in it was it was you know was was pretty amazing and that stemmed from my interest in end-of-life care and the patients I cared for at end-of-life and the services that I'd seen them receive and sometimes not as good as I thought they deserved and so going into a commissioning role to look at how we change that was really helpful for me in terms of one I could use my experience of working with patients at end of life but two I could also drive through the changes that I thought would be beneficial to those patients. Yeah and then you went on to become a general practitioner why 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 did you choose to become a general practitioner? So I was 27 when I went to medical school so six years 33 when I qualified and throughout that time I, I toyed with various options from a career point of view in terms of, of um, working in the hospital but then very quickly, I became a bit put off by the fact that you might do long weekends and you might do lots of night shifts being on call. And I felt that general practice might be more um, amenable to a better quality of life. I was going to be a bit older, um, so I was kind of ready to, to not have to do weekends and nights. And also being a GP was very much suited to my personality, I think. I'm quite an inquisitive person. I like to know about people. Um, I like to meet people, and in general practice, you you, you do all of that, um, plus some. Um, so yeah, so that was what kind of um, guided me to that choice. I'm not sure whether it has turned out to be the quieter option of, of all the jobs that there are in medicine. It probably hasn't, but but that's just the way it is. It's still very enjoyable, um, and and it suited me, and I think it's the right choice to have made. You now work with the Bolton Community Practice, yeah. which is. Uh, a social enterprise. Could you explain to people what, what that means? Yeah, so I've worked at Bolton Community Practice for about six years, similar to the time I've, I've spent at the Ombudsman. Um, and the thing that attracted me to that practice was that it's set up as a social enterprise. So when I qualified as a GP, I joined a partnership, a GP partnership, which is the traditional model of how general practice works. So you've got, we had five doctors all of whom were partners in the practice, so were kind of shareholders, I guess, in, in the business. And they managed the business, they, they managed the staff, they decided what things were done in the practice, what services we provided. And, and that's kind of the partnership model, which over time didn't really suit me. And so I left that after about seven years, and, and then I worked in digital for a short period of time, but then found Bolton Community Practice. And as you say, it's a social enterprise, so that is very different from that partnership model. It's um, we still provide the same services as GP practices, and, and we provide more kind of um, unique services from Bolton Community Practice. But what the difference is mainly is that it's um, 
every every member of staff is a is a shareholder is a as a as a, a share in the business of the practice so we all are involved in making decisions about the direction the practice is going in the major changes that might be being proposed we're all involved in that decision making and we are very active in involving patients in that as well so we have a board um, we have a medical director who's a clinical person on the board and then we have management and non-executive members of the board and patients so it's very democratic in many ways compared to a GP partnership which doesn't involve the whole range of staff and can be quite kind of um, difficult to to be part of if your values aren't linked to the values of the other partners. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. And uh, I think recently you've taken a group from our office to have a look at the practice in Bolton. How did, how did that go? Yeah, so I was approached by the learning and development part of the organisation to, to ask whether I would be willing to, to host the visit. And of course, that was um, definitely, there was no, no question about whether we should do that. It was a brilliant idea to take a group of case workers and managers to the practice to, to just show them really how general practice works behind the scenes. Lots of our complaints at the Ombudsman are about administrative stuff, uh, about people being removed from lists, about how cancer referrals are processed, about how, how correspondence is received from the hospital to the, 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 the practice. So it was an opportunity really to, to show staff from the Ombudsman just how uh, a practice functions behind the scenes. So I think we had about 10 people visit with us, which was um, a, a really nice mix of caseworkers and, and ops managers. And we had the liaison team come with us as well. And yeah, we just had a, a, a few kind of um, demonstrations of, of how we work how um, we process correspondence from the hospital, like I say. We had our secretaries talking about how cancer referrals are re- reported. Um, we had um, our medical director talk about the general um, aspects of Bolton community practice being a social enterprise, the different services that we provide that might be slightly unique to other practices. And then we thought it would be good for us to as the PHSO staff to give something back to the practice. So the liaison team gave a presentation about what we do at PHSO and how we investigate complaints, the sorts of things that we see in relation to general practice at the PHSO and how we manage complaints. Now we're trying to support practices in in, uh, in dealing with complaints through, you know, through the complaints, uh, the standard framework. So it was a really successful visit. I think we at the practice really enjoyed it, really enjoyed having people come in to see us and see what we do. It's always nice to talk about what you do and nice to have people interested in what you do. And I, I think the feedback from the colleagues at the Ombudsman was very positive too. Okay, so I, I now get to the crunch question, which is I can see from our conversation that you're attracted to doing very difficult things. Right. And then you decide that you want to join PHSO in 2014 what what made you do that yeah well I think it fits in quite nicely with with everything that I've done really I think all the time throughout my career I've been 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 interested in quality I guess and to make sure that what we do is of a high standard whether that's nursing whether that's medicine so I've always wanted to strive to to do things better to do things differently if things aren't right to try and change things if someone reports a problem with something if it can be changed if it needs to be changed then we should change that so you know that's that's my kind of how i fundamentally work i think in that i'm very keen on 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 focusing on quality and so then the opportunity came to work at the ombudsman and it seemed like 
that was just an ideal next step, really, in terms of trying to put into place the things that I'd done on a, a, a more local level in my own practice or in my practice as a GP, but actually transfer that to a, a wider level and not just focusing on what we do locally, but actually looking at whether that can be something that can affect and impact on services at a national level. And, and I think when I first started the Ombudsman, I didn't have such high sights. I didn't think that we would really be having that impact nationally. I think when I when I started the Ombudsman, I wasn't that aware of what we did. And still now, our profile could do with being raised even further. And I think we're doing that through the liaison team. But um, over the time that I've been at the Ombudsman, it's become very clear the positive impact that we can have. And I think mainly through our kind of thematic reports, our sepsis report, our end-of-life care report. And, you know, one of the things that really brought this on to me fairly recently, I was at a conference and got chatting to um, a psychiatrist. And when they found out that I worked for the ombudsman, the first thing they wanted to talk about was the heart case and the eating disorders report. And it was just, that that just brought on to me how, what effect that we do actually have, not just to the GPs in question when we're when we're handling a, a GP complaint, but how the work that we do can actually impact on things more nationally, um, and and really do have a of a, a positive change in in the care that patients receive. So it, it's yeah, I guess it's a it's, it's a challenging job, of course it is, and we come up across lots of very upsetting complaints. But I think fundamentally what we do is we we change things, and hopefully we change things for the better. So that's for me, a natural progression in my kind of career. So the time that you've been with the HSO, there have been a lot of changes. It's been a fairly bumpy ride between 2014 and 2020. The sepsis report that you referred to, the need to rewrite the Ombudsman standard, the Donaldson review of clinical advice. I mean, how, how would you say it's changed in the time that you've been with us? So significant changes um, over that time and then undoubtedly impacting on how the clinical advice functions within the office. I think the review has come along at a, at a, at a good time um, and the results of the review are hopefully going to come to fruition over the next, well, over the next few months, I guess, or even longer maybe with the whole um, thing relating to coronavirus but I think over this last six years yes there have been lots of changes in in senior management there's obviously been a change in the ombudsman and the senior management team I think that's been a very positive move for the organization I feel much more engaged with the organization than I ever did and much more able to work at at that level within the organization than I, I ever did you feel that your voice is being heard a bit more than it ever was um so I think that's all good I think that the role of clinical advice is changing within the organisation. That's probably a result of the review and also, I guess, clinicians and lead clinicians in the clinical advice function trying to champion us a bit more at senior level. And and I think that's kind of changing how we fit within the organisation, which I think is positive as well. So I, so I think over time, it's it's been sometimes some necessary changes, some much needed changes, but I think that changes have, on the whole, been for the better. And I think when we come out of 
the review. Um, hopefully, we'll be in um, clinical advice will be in a different place than it was before, and we'll be much more kind of um, engaged with caseworkers. We'll be working much more collaborative, collaboratively, um, which which is only going to be of benefit for caseworkers and clinicians, but also for our our complainants. So, I think significant changes, but really positive changes. Okay, I want to ask about your experience of working in the in the crisis that we're going through now. But just before we do that, I have colleagues in Canada and in Ireland who have responsibility for health, but they don't have jurisdiction over clinical advice. They can receive health complaints, yeah. but they can't look at issues of clinical judgment in the health service. They're constrained only to look at service issues. And they don't think that's necessarily a problem. What, what, what is your view about that, generally? So I think, I, I'm not sure that that's kind of the way I would see how, uh, how we should work. I think that there's two different things out there. We're not a regulator, so we're not looking at a doctor's fitness of practice or a, or a clinician's fitness of practice. But what we are looking at is a, an episode of care that might have not gone right, that might be separate from fitness of practice issue but, but absolutely involves the care and the actions of a clinician so I think that it must be difficult to, to separate the two really to look at service issues without looking at the people who are involved in providing that service yeah. so I'm not sure how how I'm sure they do do it but I, I think it would be very difficult to to reach a, a judgment without looking at the clinical issues around how that service failed that individual. Okay. Now tell me about working on the front line during the current crisis. What's that been like? I think, um, well, it's undoubtedly, obviously it's challenging and, and we all see the news and see the stories on the news about how the health services had to adapt to, to deal with the, the COVID-19 situation. Um, we changed how we practice quite quickly um, once lockdown was announced. So we have four branches over Bolton. We closed two of those branches and in, a, in a, an effort to just consolidate our staff to two sites to reduce the flow of patients, reduce movement and, and therefore try and reduce the spread of the, the, the virus. We then got staff working from home. So I'm currently working from home as a GP and we did that because again, to try and safeguard ourselves for future sort of developments. So if staff who were working within the practice became unwell, the staff who were at home could then be shipped into practice to take their place. Um, now, fortunately, that's not been necessary. We've had one doctor who has been sick with COVID-19, but that's, and he's better now, but that's the only one. The big change is how we consult. So most of the consultations, 80%, or done over the telephone or via video link. Um, so we get very, very few patients coming into the practice. The ones that have to, we designated a hot and a cold site. So we've got a hot site, which is where you would see the, um, the patients with potential COVID symptoms. And we've got the cold site, which would be everybody else, I guess, really. And, and what we do is we triage patients on the telephone and then direct them to the surgery should that be necessary. So, you know, we've not had to, we've been dealing with patients in a different way. We get a large volume of calls every day. So probably about 50 calls for each GP, which, you know, can be very simple concerns or they can be quite lengthy phone calls. 
we had to buy our own protective equipment, um, which we did very early on again before the stores started to run out. Um, and I think if we'd have waited, we probably would have had to wait quite some time and we would have exposed the staff to, to unnecessary kind of um, dangers. So we did that very early on. So we've never had to have a problem of staff not having um, PPE and protective equipment. The biggest issue, I think, is dealing with patients over the telephone, but and particularly dealing with patients with mental health issues over the telephone. I think that's going to be our big problem following the, the, the sort of the when things start to improve, I guess, is that we're still going to have a big uh, problem with dealing with people's mental health issues, not just people who had pre-existing mental health issues, but the whole trauma of going through this crisis is going to leave people very traumatically distressed afterwards. And I think it's um, something that we're going to have to try to work out how we deal with going forward. You know, we get complaints. I mean, everyone's anxious at the moment. I think it's natural that we're all anxious about what's happening, about being unable to leave our houses. Um, I think if you already have an underlying mental health problem, those anxieties have been amplified massively. Trying to deal with that over the telephone is very difficult. Trying to signpost patients to support which is variable still in in various parts although there is now commitment to to provide that support you've got to try and get people to use that and that's very difficult and it's very difficult over the telephone we're we're consulting in a way that we never were trained to i think on the whole inherently most gps are quite empathic and we like to see patients we like to hold someone's hand when they're distressed we like to hug somebody if it's appropriate because we know of families and we know patients and have done for many many years and we can't do any of that and if you do see someone it's with gloves masks and gowns on so it's a completely different way of working and that's kind of very stressful and and very distressing another issue i guess and that comes back to my end of life care work is 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 dealing with that aspect of the covid19 situation and having to talk to patients, to, to relatives, I guess, whose loved one has died in hospital and they've not been able to be there. And actually, the comfort that I can give them is on the end of the telephone. So it's it just it's just very, very sad. And some of the stories that we're hearing are incredibly sad about people being on, unable to go into care homes, unable to go into hospital to see their, their dying relatives. And, and, and they're incredibly tragic stories. And we're hearing more and more of them and we, I think we'll continue to do so until until the numbers of people dying starts to fall. Thank you for that. How are you managing under lockdown? What's it like for you? It's definitely a challenge, um, as it is for everybody, of course. But um, I am working from home full time. I live with my partner, John, who is also working from home full time. So... Yeah. Um, being together 24 hours a day, seven days a week is not something that we've ever had to do before and I don't think ever thought we would have to do. Um, so that in itself is a challenge and we're coping reasonably well with it. Very lucky. Um, we live um, just on the the foot of um, Rivington Pike on the, the north of Bolton, so just outside Bolton. So it's very easy for us to get out and go for walks. We also have a, a, a nice, relatively um, big garden, which again, is very easy for us to just step out the front door and, and sit out and have a coffee and get some fresh air. And so, I, I, you know, we're very, very fortunate in terms of what we can do and what we can't do with the lockdown situation. We, um, you know, and I don't underestimate how lucky we are. I think 
again, back to the people I talk to in my GP work who are living in apartments, who can't get out of the house, who don't see anybody for a week on end. You know, the, the situation some people are finding themselves in is very, very um, tragic. And, you know, luckily we're, we're, um, we're not in that situation. And yeah, I consider myself very fortunate, really. The fact that we can't do things that we normally would do, well, that's just a small price to pay for, I think, the, the overall benefits that the country will gain from us just being in lockdown for this last sort of five or six weeks and for however long it has to be. But I think, you know, at some point, we will hopefully get back to doing the things that we'd like to do, going to the theatre, going to, to restaurants, going out to, for a drink to see friends. But that's um, some way off, and I think it's a small price to pay to not do that for the benefits that we're going to gain for... Um, for, for not doing that. Thank you for that, Tony. I want to end by asking this. I know a lot of people, including PHSO colleagues, want to support the NHS and do their bit to help healthcare workers at this time. From your perspective, what can people do to help? I think what people can do to help is obviously using the health service responsibly as I know most people do, but also using the health service. So we we aren't closed for business. We are still seeing patients who aren't suffering from COVID-19, who have got other problems. So it's just making sure that you don't put things off, that you do seek appropriate kind of medical advice, medical attention when you need it. And then I guess the the bottom line is is just following the, the government's guidance, really. Staying at home is important, not going out unnecessarily is vital and it does allow colleagues in the hospital to do the job that they're doing at the moment. So I think it's it's about using the NHS responsibly, it's about following the government's sort of guidance on the lockdown, on staying at home and staying safe. Tony, that was great. It's been an absolute pleasure to listen to you and to hear your experience. Thank you everyone for listening. Have a good and safe day. Thank you for listening to Radio Onwardsman. We would love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comment. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe to future episodes.